Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, on the NSN app, on your phone, as well as Israel, National News. Dot com on the radio page, and welcome to another Thursday morning of political talk. And if it's Thursday morning, we're what seems that we're once again talking about the Donald Donald Trump, uh, the uncanny ability to dominate the headlines pretty much every day. Uh, it's it's really incredible in our robust media cycle that wall to wall coverage of the presidential race is resting with Donald Trump these days, and. To kind of understand this phenomenon, I think we can have a different guest on every single week to talk about Donald and to talk about the electorate and to talk about the Republican primary and what is happening right now to the Republican Party and the presidential race in general. So I guess we might as well give in and, and do it. We might as well just try and understand it. Uh, so I have with us Republican political salt consultant Bill O'Reilly of the November team, a consultant who has helped Many a Republican win in blue districts. What I mean is winning in places that Republicans don't normally win, where they don't constitute a majority of the electorate. And from the conventional wisdom point of view, a lot of Republicans in such districts or in states, uh, particularly those that are running for re-election to the U.S. Senate coming up in 2016, have to be a little bit nervous given the fact that Donald Trump is so incendiary, and but is leading by wide margins in many polls, there is a possibility that he will be the nominee of the Republican Party for president in 2016. Bill O'Reilly, welcome back to Spin Class. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. I tell you, Michael, I, I, uh, in your introduction, you reminded me that I, I do a, a column, a bi-weekly column for Newsday, and I swore that I wouldn't write another word about Donald Trump about 42 columns ago. <laughs> I, I you break down every time because there's just he has he just steals the spotlight in more and more outrageous ways and you need to comment on it. It's it's really a remarkable a remarkable uh, feat that he's pulled off. It is amazing, and, and the thing is, he is defying political reality, defying political convention. Right? Real, reality has always been: be careful with what you say, kind of be circumspect be politically correct. I think that's where the term comes from, is to be politically correct, yeah. not say anything to offend anybody. He goes out and offends everybody and doubles down on it and yet continues to have a hold on a, a not not a majority of the Republican electorate, but a significant minority of the Republican electorate. Yeah, he, he, he does, and, and, and now he's really walking into dangerous territory. I mean, before there was political correctness, there was something called human decency, where you tried to be, you know, somewhat kind and generous to your neighbor, and there's certain things that you, you know that you probably know you shouldn't say out loud. People have their own wicked thoughts, but you hold on to them. And Donald Trump didn't seem to get that memo ever, and he just goes out there and, and lets the id fly. And um, and you're right. There's a certain uh, a portion of the population that's just loving it. They have a visceral buy-in to uh, into what he's saying. And um, what I'm most concerned about, besides to the Republican Party, I think it's going to be very damaging to the party, is that it's really, remember, you know, Senator Moynihan talked about the defining deviancy down. He's defi- you know, Trump is de- defining deviancy down rhetorically. And we're, 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 we're like, you know, things become more and more okay as he's driving the, you know, pushing the envelope out further. And that's a really dangerous thing for any nation. 
So, Bill, let's talk, talk for a second. We're talking with Bill O'Reilly here of the November team, noted Republican political consultant, as well as a columnist uh, for Newsday, and one who looks at the Republican electorate. What strikes me significantly, Bill, is the gap in between college-educated Republicans and non-college-educated yeah. Republicans. If you look at the polling, Trump gets about half of non-college educated Republicans as his supporters. But when you go I, down well, exactly. to college educated supporter uh, uh, Republicans, it's only been the teens. It's maybe 15, 16, 18 percent. Exactly. It's, I, I was just looking at those numbers last night. It was 18 and 45, I think, if, if I remember the, the numbers that I saw. It, right, it was 18 percent of college educated Republicans and 45 percent of non, which is, which is really, really a striking, you know, a, a striking difference. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it seems to be he's, he's hitting into a different, he's hitting a, a cultural uh, touchstone. And it, it's, it's so amazing, though, that Trump is the one to do this. Here's a guy who grew up with a platinum spoon in his mouth, it wasn't even silver, um, who, who lives in, an, in, you know, in virtually an ivory and gold tower in Manhattan. He's Literally. He's a consummate New, New Yorker. Exactly. He's, uh, he has given you know, money to more Democrats and liberal causes than just about anybody in the country, save maybe George Soros, and here he is leading the leading the revolt, if you will, um, um, among um, you know kind of blue collar American Republicans, former Reagan Republicans, and it's it just it's a it's a striking thing. It just it, it keeps me up at night because I don't I don't know how he turned this guy off, and um, it's it's really becoming a problem. So, Bill, what's the Get a hypothetical scenario. You're managing a campaign for let's let's pick a endangered Republican incumbent senator running in a blue state. Let's yeah. say Mark Kirk in Illinois. Okay, you're advising him. Okay, potentially you're saying it doesn't matter the fact that Donald Trump has not won the Republican primary. At this point, he's driving the agenda so much that every Republican has to respond. So you're advising Mark Kirk, who is a who is U.S. senator who's running for re-election, which promises to be a tough fight. What do you say to him? How do you avoid Trump and his rhetoric and his and his bombast without alienating some core Republicans who with whom Trump has an appeal? It's it's a it's a great question, Michael, and it's a situation that has come up several times already, and especially in the past week with with clients and with other electeds that have have called to ask that question. And I don't. And I, I should first say that I don't believe under any circumstances still that Trump will be the Republican nominee. And I don't think he lasts too much longer. But I've been saying that for months. But I'm I'm going to stick with it. I, I really don't think that the larger Republican voter will will allow it. Um, that said, what, what I'm telling people is perhaps corny, and it's not a, a political calculus so much as it is a moral imperative. I'm, I'm telling people that you need to do the right thing, and that, um, and that there are certain times uh, in history where events come up and you have to take the right moral choice, regardless of what that outcome may mean to you personally. I also happen to think that is probably smart politically because... You can broaden your base. It's a great branding thing for talking to Democrats and to uh, and to independents who you know m- might consider voting for a Republican. You can brand yourself that way. But I think branding aside and political calculus aside, I think people of goodwill need to speak out when Donald Trump says things like, uh, you know, th- there's a religious test for coming to America. 
regardless of how the race turns out, you need to speak out, do the right thing, bet on, you know, God's good grace, karma, whatever you want to call it, that you will be rewarded for, for doing and saying the right thing. That's the advice I'm giving. I'm not sure it's great, but that's my advice. Now, what do you say to the people? That, I'm sure you come across quite a few people, Bill, who are supporting Trump. And people that yeah. we know, I come across people who are supporting Trump. And I'm usually a little bit taken aback uh, in, in a sense because if you're a knowledgeable person, you have an idea why Trump is not – not that he can't win, not, not any of those issues, but why he's so shallow on the issues and why that's so troublesome and why he might not be qualified. And because, you know, for all the reasons, what do you say – how do you how do you get somebody to, to stop drinking the Kool-Aid if you will. I'm having a lot of trouble with it. I'm wondering what your answer is. I don't know yet. <laughs> you don't know yet. Okay. I don't, I don't know yet because, you, you know, they, they, they tell you that. You, you tell them something about Trump, and, and then they'll say, but he's going to make America great again. Why would you oppose that? <laughs> I'm wondering, like, um, well, I mean, what, what point, I, we're 60 days out from We're 60 days out from Iowa. At what point do people wake up and smell the coffee? That's, I guess, what I'm saying. I mean, I think I think Trump loses handily in Iowa. I don't. I think he ends up running third or even fourth. I think he also loses New Hampshire. And I think he begins to wane. Then uh, you know he loses the first couple of states, and then it becomes less fun. I don't think he goes that that far. But I think the argument that needs to be made to, to people is that there's no there there. This is a false prophet. Uh, you know, Obama is. I mean, sorry, uh, Trump is fool's gold. I mean, he's coming out and talking in in these very very shallow platitudes. And I think people need to be, A, educated, or B, made to feel foolish for supporting him. Because Trump has no substance. And, you know, if you, if you could, you know, lock him in a real interview for a couple of hours, that could be revealed. But he rolls out and he talks in, you know, he talks in these, um, these you know, uh, very, very sparse sentences and gets away with it. He's been allowed to get away with it, in part because he's so sensational to the news media. It's such a good sell for them. I mean, if you look at Drudge, he's up there every day. There's there's five Trump stories, and it sells. All the clicks pay off. But um, I, I I think I think making I think both educating Trump supporters and and making them feel a little foolish in time is probably what it's going to take. So you you've kind of answered my anticipated my question for you. The next question, Bill. But I, I think that me and you and other political consultants, we always try and advise our candidates, do what you can to dominate the news cycle and control the agenda. So, short of, I don't want to spend the entire time being critical of Trump. I want to actually give him some credit for what he actually is doing, which is dominating the yeah. news cycle. Every broadcast, everybody, not just, you know, it's not just Drudge, it's everyone. Trump is everywhere. So, what is he doing right, or what is he, what is he doing to go ahead and suck up all the oxygen from everybody else. I mean, it's unbelievable. Hillary Clinton is not getting any airtime. And, you know, she would be the presumptive Democratic nominee at this point. Nobody else is getting any airtime aside from Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I do find that amazing. I, I just talked with, also this morning, talked with somebody about, um, about how this race has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. I mean, with, with all the issues on that side, it's got nothing to do with it. I think what Trump, I mean, Trump is willing to go places that others aren't, first of all. He's very, he's very bold. He's, um, you know, he's, I don't know if brave is the word, but he's, um, he's bullish. He's undeterred. He's, you know, he, um, he's able to, uh, you know, he, he's very confident in himself. There's never any lack of confidence. 
he, um, he can endure criticism. He can push through bad news cycles and stick to his guns. I mean, that's an important lesson for, you know, for people that, that run and are, and are pushing the envelope on issues is to, you know, plant your heels on the ground and stick in there and don't run, you know, when you get criticized. Uh, Trump has perhaps done that to the extreme, but it is something to, to note and to remember and to learn from that if you really believe in something, don't, don't be shy about it when you get the blowback. You know, when you, when you plant your feet is when voters really respect you for something. I would, you know, I still think Trump has gone too far, but it is a lesson for others running for office that if, if you're going to say something, stand by it and stick firm to it. Okay, Bill O'Reilly of the November team, noted Republican political consultant and pundit. Thanks for joining us once again on Spin Class. And hopefully uh, next time yeah, we cut, we're together, we don't have to continue on to the same conversation and be so uh, <laughs> in awe of the Trump phenomenon. From your lips to you know where. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. And I want to welcome to Spin Class Dr. Israel Singer, a professor of political science at Turo College, as well as the former Secretary General of the World Jewish Congress, world traveler, uh, somebody who is intimately familiar with Jewish communities worldwide and marking specifically the first anniversary of the massacre, or I guess the murder of Jews in Paris, France, in the kosher supermarket, Hyper Kasher, which was marked this week by a very special concert hosted by our own Nahum Siegel at, in Paris, France, a concert of unity. Dr. Singer, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you very much. So it's been one year. It's hard to imagine. It's been one year since those attacks, and they've kind of been overshadowed by the recent attacks by ISIS in Paris, France, as well as the reaction by the French public and the French uh, government to those attacks, essentially to declare war on ISIS. And I guess the big question since that year, which has certainly alarmed many in the French community, a lot, there's been a lot of soul searching about amongst French Jews, whether they have a future in France. So first and foremost, I'd like you to address that and to talk about the French community, particularly for the audience uh, who may not be familiar with many Jews outside of the United States. The French Jewish community, Michael, is a uh, unique uh, Jewish community. It's an old Jewish community. Uh, French Jews have been living in France so long before uh, they uh, ever heard of uh, America. Uh, it has been a, uh, a stronghold of uh, Jewish life uh, of different kinds uh, since the time of Rashi, uh, which is a thousand years ago. Uh, French Jews have had all different kinds of experiences in France, uh, good ones and bad ones, but it has been a, uh, a unique uh, uh, Jewish life. My parents lived in France for several years uh, when they were fleeing the Nazis, and I must tell you that France, even during World War II, had unique experiences. Many Jews were saved in France, and many were deported by the French uh, in, uh, in helping the Nazis. So France has had... Uh, a, a spotty history uh, with regard to Jews, but Jews have always felt part of French life. Uh, France is the home of uh, uh, the Dreyfus Affair uh, and of uh, uh, Captain Dreyfus, who was found uh, uh, guilty during an anti-Semitic uh, period at the turn of uh, the last century. 
Uh, France has been a place in which uh, synagogues were blown up uh, uh, 25 years ago when I began my career in Jewish life. And they came to uh, uh, Paris uh, when shuls were blown up uh, by right-wing uh, fascists. Uh, France has been attacked by uh, Muslims uh, uh, in the last uh, uh, year uh, and uh, even in the last five years uh, uh, in various cities. Uh, French Jewish life is composed of uh, two uh, different kinds of uh, uh, people of uh, different backgrounds. Uh, French Jewish life uh, has the old Ashkenazi Jewish community, uh, which is about a third of French Jewish uh, 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 demographies, uh, uh, relationship with the France and uh, the new French Jews uh, who came since uh, North Africa uh, after Israel became a state, uh, became less hospitable to Jews, uh, where half of the Jews of uh, North Africa went to Israel and uh, the other half uh, went to France because they had French citizenship and could come. Uh, so the Jews in France, you know, are different. The rumors are that since uh, the last wave of anti-Semitism, not of the right, but of the Islamic uh, strike, uh, has a very large part of French Jewry sitting on their suitcases ready to make Aliyah. Some of that is true. Uh, in fact, uh, there are many Jews in France sitting on their suitcases ready to go to uh, Montreal, where French is spoken. Uh, even some uh, relatively large numbers ready to go to warmer climates, because they live in warm climates in the Mediterranean, to Florida uh, and other places in the United States. Uh, there is a, a considerable number of French Jews uh, who want to leave uh, and who would leave if there would be more violence. But I want to tell you this, and this is very, very important. Don't underestimate the fact that French Jews are not only Francophone, but Francophile. They love France. They believe they're French. Even if they've only come from North Africa recently in the long history of Jews in France, and I would like to warn people, particularly the Israel government, not to describe all French Jews as people heading for the airport with their luggage. They're not. So let's let's talk about the French government for a second and the reaction to terrorism and the perception. At, we talked about this with a terrorism expert a couple weeks ago, but the perception of... France or of Europeans in general is by Americans, by many Americans, particularly in this climate, is that the Europeans are a little bit soft on terrorism. You know, they're soft militarily. They're not ready to take the action. But I think the reality, and it's been explained to me by experts, the reality is that the Europeans, particularly the intelligence services, are very aggressive. Uh, probably possibly more aggressive than the Americans are when it comes to domestic terrorism. They just have more of a problem given the fact that there are so many uh, there are so many refugees now flooding Europe. There are so many uh, nationals of countries where where Islamic radicalism is is present. And it, when it comes down to it, there are so many uh, Muslims in France who are many of whom are radicalized, and it's very very tough. You're very familiar with the French government. I know you've operated the highest levels of the French government and familiar with many of the, uh, the of the leadership. Uh, how would you describe their posture towards terrorism? What are the misconceptions that we have as Americans? Michael, you've uh, touched on 
many, many subjects in the last uh, 120 seconds. And uh, as usual, you know, you've analyzed them uh, very, very well. Uh, adding to what you've said, you know, would be uh, uh, really uh, unnecessary. However, I am going to give you some of the nuances that I've learned in my career. Point number one, the French government is among the most efficient with regard to responding to events as opposed to our government in this administration. That's point number one. The uh, French secret services don't have as much respect for constitutional rights during times of difficulty as this administration says it does and actually does. We, compared to the French socialists who are in power now, are soft, maybe even flaccid with regards to the way we are treating terrorism compared to the way the French do and have done. French external and internal intelligence services don't throw as much money per capita at problems as the Americans do, but act with far greater resolve. The French have a special problem, and it's not their inability to deal with problems the way the Obama administration is finding its inability to deal with terrorism. And by looking uh, at terrorism with an absence of seriousness, there's just no other way to describe it. I also take this opportunity to criticize with great aggressive behavior the incompetence of Jewish organizations in the United States in calling on their government to respond more assertively. French Jewry didn't have to call on Prime Minister Valls to declare war that was credible on terrorism in France, with 10% of the population being Muslims with 10% of the population of France being persons who have uh, really endangered the country, the French government knows by itself that it needs not only to announce and pronounce war on people who are threatening terror and French culture and the French way of life, but we haven't learned much from them as to how to do this. In fact, you know, when Prime Minister Valls or even President Hollande, who's an outright socialist in his social perception of society and believes that people have rights to speak, people have rights to publish, people have rights to say almost anything, but they don't have rights to kill people. And people don't kill other people just because they have guns, they kill other people because they are culturally oriented towards violence, something which we need to understand in the United States, and we need to declare war on that. However, the uh, French culture is such that the French president and the French prime minister have an understanding of the political realities in their country. They have a really threatening right wing in Mrs. Marine Le Pen, who is getting the socialists to fight for their political lives by making the response tough in France, which secures the Jewish community in France, because they're worried that the French public will vote for the extreme right and throw them out of office. 
Right. So actually, uh, if we can address that really quickly, the the Miss Le, Le Pen's party, the National Front, just uh, scored a substantial victory in Sunday's elections. Uh, I guess a midterm type elections. Uh, the National Front was the first place in the initial round of regional elections. Can you address that very quickly? And I want to be mindful. We have I'll address a, a, a that very quickly, and I'll tell you that the the uh, the, the the National Front uh, has been around for uh, thirty years. But uh, Mrs. Le Pen, Miss Le Pen's father, uh, who headed the organization and the party for a period of uh, twenty-five years during my uh, uh, during my participation in Jewish life. Uh, was viewed as a freak. Miss Le Pen is not a freak. Miss Le Pen is a realistic candidate and has made the party almost, almost kosher uh, to uh, most people. This threat to uh, the, to the right and to the left uh, by the extreme right uh, is uh, much more serious than it is anywhere else. For instance, Miss Le Pen is not viewed uh, like. Uh, some of our more right-wing candidates uh, who come from New York, uh, uh, who own a lot of hotels, uh, uh, she sounds almost rational. And I want to tell you that if the Republican Party uh, had people in its party who sounded the way she does, uh, the Democrats would be more afraid of uh, the Republican Party. I think that Jewish community in the United States has not caught on to the fact that we need to... Uh, call on our government to be the same way as the French uh, government has responded to terrorism. They were efficient. They were quick. Uh, they didn't just talk a good game, uh, but they caused a certain amount of uh, fear uh, and a certain amount of participation on the part of Muslims in France to rat on uh, the violent parts of their community to the French secret services, which is the system that the French use much more efficiently than we do. Our president said we need the Muslims to help us beat uh, the Islamic terrorists, but he didn't tell us how, and he didn't create uh, the kind of environment in the uh, Islamic community in America uh, that would, uh, uh, I think, give us the feeling that our Muslim citizens or co-citizens in the United States are beginning to uh, call on their people to behave differently and to make it not uh, acceptable to behave uh, as uh, violent uh, of, of, of people in, in, in American society. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Dr. Dr. Israel Singer from uh, Professor of Political Science at Turo College. I have one very quick last question because, as always, we're out of time. It's the 50th anniversary of the Nostra Etate, I get that wrong, uh, proclamation. Nostra uh, Etata. Nostra Etata uh, is right. And uh, to just the Nostra historical Etata perspective, the, uh, 50 years later, how much progress yeah, historical has been perspective. Made? It made immense progress. I was president of uh, the International Jewish Committee and Interreligious Consultations, the Jewish organization that has official relations with the Vatican. When the Vatican, you know, had uh, much of its changes uh, uh, instituted uh, during Pope John Paul II, when I spoke with him at a commemoration of this uh, 10 years ago, uh, and then during Benedict's period of, of, uh, of papacy, and now uh, during uh, Pope Francis's, uh, I can only tell you that the change with regard to the Catholic Church's attitude towards Jews in the last 15 years has been greater than in the last 1,500 years. There's been more historic contribution made by the Catholic Church at its insistence. The Church realized that one of its greatest flaws was its history in relationship to the Jews, and one of its weakest historic positions was how it related to its 
not sister faith, but parent faith. It changed that during the last three papacies. The Jews deserve a lot of the credit Jewish organizations do. They work very hard in helping the Catholic Church find its way throughout this period. Uh, the Church has changed. It, it is the most successful change the Church has participated in. It has not successfully introduced its relationship with other faiths as effectively as it has with Jews. It hasn't done it with Muslims. It hasn't done it with Protestants. It really hasn't made as much uh, headway. We are the beneficiaries of this, and uh, we need to view the Catholic Church today as an ally rather than as an enemy, which it was for the first 2,000 years of the history of Catholicism. It is absolutely incredible, I uh, will close with this, that to, to imagine a world, people of my generation and younger, where the official policy of the Catholic Church is would be one of anti-Judaism or anti-Semitism, uh, even further. It's hard to imagine such a world, but uh, it has obviously changed tremendously in the last 50 years, and uh, tremendous credit goes out to those who made it happen. Uh, Dr. Singer, thank you very much for joining us here and very informative and lively conversation on these topics. Hopefully we'll have you again in the very near future. Thank you very much, Mr. Fragan. Have a very, very good afternoon. Thank you. And this is Spin Class. We close another Thursday of political talk. Once again, uh, kudos and tremendous congratulations to Nachum Siegel and all the team here at the Nachum Siegel Network for pulling off an incredible concert in Paris as well that Nachum will be back on Friday with his regular show, JM and the AM, for, I'm sure, an incredible wrap-up of that. Please tune in. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. 